0: Welcome to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Jørgensen.
1: I'm Arne Jurgensen.
0: And we're happy to welcome you all here. Um, we want to note that the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks have been going since March 2020. Um, and for most weeks, then, we've had uh, an author come to talk about their book and to uh, take your questions on it. All of those talks have been recorded. So on the same website where you got the link to this talk, um, you can see the other talks that we've also had. And we have more uh, that are coming up for the rest of um, 2021 and then into 2022. So if you happen to be a book author, uh, be sure and contact us if you want to get your book featured on our book talks. And today, we are very happy to welcome Max LeBoyron, who is Associate Professor of Geography at Memorial University in Canada, who will be talking about their book, Pollution is Colonialism, that came out with Duke University Press this year, 2021. So Max, we'll give it over
2: to you. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, again, my name is uh, Dr. Max Liberon. Um, and uh, it is a pleasure to be presenting here. So thank you again for the invitation. Uh, pollution and colonialism uh, is at least a 10 year journey. It took me at least 10 years to write uh, starting back in the days of my dissertation. And the book comes out of two intersecting issues. Uh, the first was that during my dissertation, marine plastics were just starting to be articulated as a scientific issue. And as I studied that, I became convinced that because plastics polluted so differently than other types of pollutants, that it would blow the norms for for pollution out of the water, pun intended, and we'd have a paradigm shift, right? So plastics don't assimilate. They, in fact, become like into the environment. They don't become absorbed or diluted. And in fact, they become more and differently dangerous the more they break down. Uh, they support life like the plasticine as well as threaten life and the, the chemicals associated with the plastics called endocrine disrupting compounds have some of the greatest harms at the lowest doses, which is directly contrary to the, axiolo- the axiom in um, toxicology that the danger makes the dose. And so I was sure I was positive. I was banking on maybe not banking on because, but I hadn't have any money to bank on, but uh, that that it would totally change everything. And it didn't, and so one of the sort of thrusts was like, why the heck not? What? What's like? Hmm. The second thing that happened is that I became a scientist. So even though my PhD is in social science and I have two art degrees, I'm, uh, uh, so I wasn't expecting to be a scientist again. I have a background in science, and but when I came to this province, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, there was no science to critique, which had been. My bread and butter. And so I started to do this undone undone science, but I wanted to do it in a way that addressed all the critiques that I had in my dissertation about plastic pollution science, as well as, you know, science and technology studies in general about the extractive macho individualist sort of elite colonial nature of science. So these two intersections were why, like a mystery about why plastics didn't change pollution which is about power, and uh, trying to do science in a way that was very different than the scientific norm, which was about power. And at first I thought my book was about plastics, but that power in both cases could be called colonialism. And so the book is centered around colonialism now. So the book does four things. Uh, And this is a very real post-it note that lives right there on my computer. Uh, And the notes of this post-it note I actually didn't write, reviewer number one, which was Joe Masco, it turns out, um, wrote these in my review and damn, he was a good reviewer and these are so helpful. So the first thing the book does, according to Joe Masco and I agree, is that uh, it is a methodological text and it argues that methodology is a way of being in the world and not just doing in the world. And uh, specifically that methodology is just another way to say land relation, all methodologies, all ways of doing are, have land relations. So the book is also a methods text. So this is the index, uh, which was a methodological experiment in and of itself. And this is the section on methods. So you can see the massively long number of things. And it includes things like bleeding and categorization and ceremony and compromise and conflation and creepiness, all as methodologies that I talk about in the text, in addition to like scientific measurement and these sorts of things. And they all have land relations. So, the point about land relations is the other thing the book really gets into. So, number two, uh, I redefine pollution as colonialism, not as a byproduct or uh, an anticipated consequence or something like that, but actually as colonialism. And so, um, I talk about colonialism as um, non Indigenous access and the entitlement and the assumption of access to Indigenous land for non Indigenous goals whether those are environmental or scientific or for private property, for settlement, a full range. Um, And so there's the first chapter of the book um, is all about how colonial land relations underpin dominant theories of pollution. So um, dominant theories of pollution, which which really developed and solidified in the early 1900s uh, are about how the land can absorb and assimilate and dilute a certain amount of pollution before harm occurs and it's it's science, science becomes locating that moment before harm occurs but when contaminants exist and that line is pollution. But that definition and the sciences and the regulatory structure that support that um, assume access to indigenous land for the, the storage or dilution or whatever of pollution and securing settler and industrial futures. Uh, And so even benevolent science, you know, environmental science, that that the activist science that uses that regulatory structure still has a colonial land relation. So the third thing the book does, given that, is it uses plastics to refuse and refute the colonial. So uh, I argue that the plastics are in a myriad of land relations. They're just not like these evil, horrible, wayward pollutants, but, you know, based on destruction, but they, you know, they're... They're very old relatives that have been uh, coerced and crushed into certain land relations that are not good ones all the time, but they also support life. So there's actually like the plastosphere and these ecosystems that only exist on plastics in the ocean, for example. Um, And so they have a bunch of complex land relations. And so I follow plastics um, around in different sciences and in different activisms to see the land relations that they engender. And in the second chapter, I became quite surprised. And it... I was So I always set out to look at both sciences and activism and the land relations of plastics in those spaces. And what happened was surprised me, which is that in the sciences, endocrinology, toxicology, there were more moments of usually white settler scientists who were really invested in plastic science having these moments of good land relations or anti-colonial land relations compared to activism, which was almost always based on annihilation and very colonial land relations. So I was very surprised about that. Um, and then the last thing the book does uh, is Chapter 3, uh, which is a combination of refuting the colonial through plastics, which is that it uses my lab, CLEAR, which is a marine science laboratory, to talk about uh, as a model for talking about an anti-colonial science, of which there are many And my lab is only one example, of course, or a combination of examples, maybe. Um, but basically looking at how do you do science with humility and accountability and in good land relations, when you work on pollution, especially when the dominant model is a colonial one, right? About, about thresholds and standards and how you, you know, the land can handle a certain amount of pollution. And that's the model of nature and the model of goodness and the measures that you inherit. How do you change those into other land relations? Uh, so we often joke that the chapter three is like dessert, um, but, to, to get the full argument, yeah, you need the whole book. So that's a very uh, quick overview of the steps the book goes through. Um, one thing I'm gonna spend some time talking about is the, f- the form of the book. So, uh, uh, I have a background in art and in art, the format is the thing. It's, it's part of the argument. So you can say all you want, but if the format is making a different argument, you're not believable. So for example, manals on like women's rights. The format just doesn't hold. It weakens the argument. it looks really screwed up. And so um, I wanted to extend these ar- if methodology is ways of being in the world and um, writing is a methodology, and you can see that one of the very last things in my index on methods says writing then I had to write this book in such a way that it enacted some of these lessons. Secondly, uh, and relatedly, a lot, of, a lot of the book book's theory comes out of doing chores, like trying to be a scientist and coming into these issues and, and realizing that something wasn't going to work. And that's what the theory comes out of. So it's theorizing through chores. And writing was definitely one of those chores. Uh, so a lot of people, for instance, comment on the footnotes in the book. So the book is like, at least a third and possibly half footnote. Um, and I do that for a number of reasons. One of them is to, for humility and accountability to show the, the shoulders I stand on. These are the, the authors and I don't want them in the back where you'd have to flip to find them. I want to show that I'm standing on their shoulders and that if it, it breaks up any uh, confusion that this might be a solo monologue in the book, right? No, this is this is everyone involved and in there are thank yous in the footnotes and citations and then a lot of method in the footnotes. Here's how I tried to do this. Here's why this is capitalized. Here's why this is a Canadian spelling. Here's why, you know, all these sorts of things, the methodological notes. Like if I was a mathematician showing my work, a lot of that happens in the footnotes. Um, And um, there are other other techniques too, swearing, telling jokes. A lot of the book is quite, dense and, and some, some of it is very difficult. I'm talking about colonialism and pollution. It's not like a light topic. And so jokes sort of break up and give room to take a breath while you're reading um, and also to hopefully further some of the arguments. The jokes uh, and the swearing are heavily edited. Uh, I was a stand-up comment for a short period of time and none of that is intuitive. Like, yes, there's style in that, but like that is hours and hours and hours of editing to make a good joke um so yeah so a lot of those chores and methods are are in the footnotes um and that is actually very interesting my last point this is a very short talk so i could have lots of q a time um, it's already short but i made it a little bit shorter um overwhelmingly to my face the, re- the reaction to this book has been very positive people say they learn a lot for instance like the the introduction spends a lot of time being like, okay, here's colonialism and here's how it's not. Here's what's often confused, like colonialism and capitalism are different. Here's how they're not related. Here's how they totally love each other and have sex. Here's how you like lots of little steps to, to bring people in and people say, you know, thank you for that. And they talk about the footnotes and you know, it's very nice. So thank you everyone. Uh, there ha- I have heard some uh, negative remarks on the book. And what's interesting is they are all the same or they're all very similar. And that's either that, There's no theory or it's not academic or it's not rigorous. So there's this absence of, of academiciness in the book. Um, And I understand that as a primarily a class-based reaction to the book. So swearing, writing plainly, doing theories through chores, using stories. I worked very hard to remove the class-based barriers of academic writing. Part of that is because I think they're super rude. I do not come from an academic background and none of my family does. And so I always find that quite rude and elitist, but also this book went through elder peer review and even because it had to, because when you're when you're talking about indigenous methodology and, and you're thinking about your book as part of ceremony, you just can't say anything you want, that's not cool. And so it had to go through right these different types of review. And so I would think like Rick Trevoia, who's who's one of the, the elder reviewers, he has to read this and being like, uh, you know, the ontological materialism and the unreflective conflation of axiology with ontology is a super rude thing to say to that kind of audience uh, when I can just say, well, you know, doing chores um, brings together the right and the good and the doing together. And that's more helpful than dividing those things out. One of those was an easier sentence to understand. Why would I not just choose the second one? So I think it's it's quite interesting that... Um, that very conscious and highly edited technique is also being um, recognized as a lack of method, even though it's like the tripling down of method. So uh, yeah, well, we're thinking about, I think, uh, within the context of the book and its aims, uh, as well as future projects. So that's all I'm gonna say for now. I have other slides and other stuff to talk about, but I think we'll get to those through the the Q&A. So thank you.
1: Thanks, Max. This was really fascinating. It, there's a lot here that resonates, I think, uh, also. And I think you're you're onto some, I mean, some really pressing issues facing academia about you know responsible scholarship, responsible practice. Also, how do we do this in a good way? Um, that I think is just going to be more and more important in in the time that's coming. Then, so we have now time for questions. I shall open with one, but just remind people to let us know in the chat uh, if you have questions. I guess the Q&A will take the place of footnotes in your talk, right? This is where we can really flesh out things. Um, That'd be good. So the thing I wanted to start with asking about is about stories and storytelling. Uh, I mean, you did a very quick I mean admirably you know efficient uh introduction uh in a way we got a story about you writing this book uh and that is good can you share some stories or, or are there stories in the book about uh I mean plastic pollution and relations and how you work uh do you use stories strategically. I mean, you talked about science, but do you use storytelling as a strategy or a method also. Could you say a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So there are little italicized vignettes throughout the book um, that tell stories uh, from the lab. And they're actually from multiple people. They're not all or even mostly from me. They're from other lab members. And again, that was to break up this, this idea that maybe this is a monologue that comes out of my own head. It does not. It a lot of people to build this book. So, so it's multivocal in that way. Um, almost, well, all of the stories are these um, moments where lessons become apparent through chores or through interaction where, so the when, when something happens and there's a certain type of tension that you can notice and you have to get past it, there's like a chore to be done. And so the story tells how that works out. And most of the stories were added. So the first draft that I submitted to the press had no stories. And uh, that was because <laughs> uh, there's a there's a very uh, interesting tension in the book at least as the author, where the the first version I wrote it anticipated one audience. And that was a primarily white settler audience, which is primarily what's in academia, at a time in academia where, as you said, there's this reckoning that research is not always in good relations. There's a lot of appropriation and extractivism. And that's, that's what we get rewarded for as academics. At the same time, a real hunger for sort of indigenous. Ont- oh, Max, it looks like your sound um, just went out. Try
0: maybe meeting yourself and coming back in and see. Um, yep. There we go. She's Max, Max is back. We'll get the. Uh...
2: Hi all. There was uh, the sound of a chainsaw outside, and okay, so... and the internet went out, and now it's back. So okay, okay. so there you are. Keep keep going. Now I'm we're, sorry. We're, we'll edit it
1: out, or we leave it in. <laughs> okay, part of the no Part of the
2: process. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Welcome to the North and Internet. Um, so there's this tension in the book about audiences. So my, my initial, I wrote the, the book for an audience of primarily white settler scholars that don't that often want to do a good job and want, but don't know how yet because the academia has certainly not taught us. And there's also a fetishization and a sort of extractivism around indigenous ontologies and stuff. And almost, well, every indigenous person I know in academia, just the, the it sucks. Basically, and and we have to deal with it all the time, from microaggressions all the way up to like theft. So, given that that was an audience I anticipated, I wrote for that audience, and I was constantly uh, using this technique that the book calls—it's uh, a very well-known methodology called cock blocking, which is basically blocking other people's desires when it's inappropriate. And the book was written a lot like that, and it even ended with a man and no no, a manifesto of no's. Do not steal this work. You cannot use it like this. This is place-based, and it will not universalize. You know, and. One of my second reviewer, uh, who turned out to be Candace Callison, who's an indigenous person and very much acting as an auntie said, why the hell did you invite me into this book if you're gonna tell me to screw off at the end? And I said, fair enough. <laughs> it's because I wrote it without thinking about indigenous audiences, which was shocking to me um, because a huge part of my work is like working with indigenous people who are in academia and you know my students you know? and so I was like, oh my gosh. So then I rewrote the entire book, trying to talk to multiple audiences at the same time while also trying to be more generous uh, with, with settler and white, white scholars. Uh, and so the stories came in at that point, both to, to make room for multiple audiences. And so I could leave certain things on the page, especially for indigenous audiences who could read between the lines while also, you know, so, so the stories came a to be able to making space for multiple audiences. Um, Yeah, they're more a form of generosity, I would say, and bringing in more of the like indigenous readership who are also some of the people who tell the stories are now reading the book, right? They're in the book too. So that's a long, long answer to a short question.
0: So you said that you started with plastics, um, but in the title, then you move to pollution, right? that, That you get less specific in terms of of plastics um, in a way. And so I was wondering how you think about or how do you define pollution in terms of this book?
2: Uh, So that's that's, uh, chapter one is all about uh, the modern definition of pollution um, and how it was invented with a lot of work and a lot of chores in the 1920s and 30s. be about this this moment where land can no longer absorb contaminants and contaminants flip into pollution that is now the universal pretty much regulatory scientific definition of pollution but chapter one also traces all the different um many 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 different scientific lay expert all sorts of different definitions of pollution that were proliferating uh but when you have many many different definitions of pollution everything from it makes me sick it smells bad it's got floaties it's not good to swim in it's got 15 parts per carbon for per gram like they're mutual they, they don't work for regulation because you need to regulate across different spaces and so um, this now fairly universal method um, of locating the moment when contamination becomes pollution because it harms um, that became articulated in what's in oxygen sag and the Streeter-Phelps theory, which is the history I talk about in in chapter one, um, precisely because it could universalize and because it allowed pollution to occur, which was the colonial land relation that governments and industry, which were the same thing in Canada, Canada and the Hudson's Bay Company were the same thing for many, many years, Um, really needed, right? They needed some sort of allowable limit or some sort of allowable articulation so they could keep polluting and maintain that land relation as if like, so what was never on the table was uh, no pollution allowed. That's screwed up. That's not not cool. That's not how you treat your auntie um, or something like this.
1: Great. So we have, Alan says she has many questions. You can ask one at least to begin with, Uh, let's see.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Max. Um, you actually, pre, uh, you and Dolly both sort of preempted my question about audience, um, but i am struck in the way you explained some of the tone of the book by your use of the term rude, because it's actually what stu- stuck out in, in one of particular moment in your book when you were talking about the albatross photo, which is actually was part of what you talked about the first time I saw you give a presentation. Um, and you mentioned, and it really stuck with me, that it wasn't just wrong to use the albatross to to denote destruction rather than the presence of sustained and persisting life. You say it's rude, and I just really kind of would love for you to talk about your sense of, of where calling out rudeness is is important rather than just calling out inaccuracy or ill intentions, etc. If that makes sense.
2: Yeah, I mean it comes back to land relations and account. So the, the book is the book is basically about obligation. I use the word obligation a lot, where um, the world gives you a lot. It gives you food and water and warmth and all this sort of stuff. And so you, you know, there's obligations that, that come with that in, in various indigenous and non-indigenous uh, cosmologies. Um, even Christianity has a version of this. And so um, not doing your obligations is, is not only wrong, it's, it's rude, it's bad relations, you're being bad kin, you're being a jerk, being an asshole, and that's not cool, it's bad method. So the what you're talking about, Dr. Arnold, is um, this for those who haven't read the book um, or who don't know it. There's there's all these photos in plastic pollution of of dead albatross who have partial whose carcasses have partially rotted, and you can see the plastics coming through the stomach, but not so much rotted that you can't identify that it's a bird. And the book talks about um, just putting that up on a slide is rude. And there's these discussions in indigenous archaeology putting pictures of so if if you were giving a talk would you put a picture of your dead daughter or auntie on the board no that would be like the height of bad manners and rudeness and poor relations yet almost always when i see these pictures of albatross and social science talks because by the way scientists don't use them uh is, is is it's about kinship to to the world and animals i'm like you're being bad kin right now like you're being a dick how could like how can you miss this so there's, there's that, but that's, so that's the bigger issue. There's also the little accuracy issue inside, which is that uh, albatross do not die from plastics. Um, uh, there's a whole expl- scientific explanation in the book that doesn't mean plastics make them happy or anything like that, but most albatross chicks die of starvation because there are always more chicks than those survive, even in times before plastic. Uh, and when animals are dying and starving, they'll eat anything, including plastics. So, uh, but the main message is like, if you think of methods as being in good relations with the world, what kind of relation is it to to show pictures of carcasses? Uh, And it's also actually um, paired with um, Eve Tuck's work called Suspending Damage. So she critiques this model of justice where you have to prove that harm has occurred in order for justice to occur and that what that does is it essentializes certain people and it's always the same people over and over again as damaged and in deficit and traumatized and w- we internalize that and it's part of a centralization and racism even as it's also a model of justice and she argues in suspending damage that's a bad model of justice and i totally agree you can just argue like pollution is a bad land relation and you don't have to prove that it harms people um to, to make the change. So good question, thank you. Or like question that let me show off a lot, thank you.
1: <laughs> exactly. So uh, we have a, a question in the chat from Caroline Gottschalk Droschke um, on the relationship with the press in this process. I mean, because there's many relationships here. Because you you describe how you push against so many of these in a way, seeming rules of academic publishing. So could you? Talk a bit more about the process that led you to to publish something that's so different. You you bend the style here.
2: That's a really important question. So methodologies, I've written about this uh, in other work, that if you're going to do interventionist type of work, you need to have people on your side. It's not a solo endeavor and never will be. And so Duke was on my side. So I interviewed a number of presses (laughs) um about what their norms were what their ethics were that sort of stuff and duke was the one who was most impressive and the most willing to do weird stuff and it's not a coincidence that my editor is ken whisker who's one of the head honcho editors and so like if anyone argued with me i would just say ken said so and that was the end of the discussion so the footnotes for instance were on the table when i was choosing a, a press And if the press was like, well, I was like, and we're not going out together again, (laughs) right? So um, what was, An amazing gift is that I also, uh, Josh Turan was my other, I had two editors because Josh was apprenticing and then became a full editor during my book. It was beautiful. Um, But uh, I would say, hey, I need Canadian spellings because this, one of the arguments in the book is that method has to come out of place and is not universal. And this comes out of Canada and I need use randomly scattered throughout the text. And they were like, yep, that's a, yep, okay, cool. Or I was like, "Uh, I will not be italicizing indigenous language because by the argument of my book, English is the foreign language, not indigenous languages. And they're like, yep, okay. Uh, So every moment, every every moment of something that was weird. Um, And there were definitely moments when copy editors would do something where I was like, "Mm," and I would have to work it back up the chain because a lot of the, the nitty gritty of the work is so unstandardized or against standards, different than standards. Um, but again, because Ken was on my side, those were always resolved very quickly. And I cannot overemphasize the importance of, of that relationship. Yeah.
1: I wanted to ask a follow-up question there, um, which I think is a challenge that many people face. I mean, you talk about, uh, you know, the need for land relations, you know, all methods uh, rather of that. But I think a lot of academics in particular and, in you know, early career stages are or can easily become quite placeless in that they move from place to place, never being able to sink down roots. Um, I mean, A, did you notice any difference then in in coming to St. John's uh, working there? And do you have some tips for people facing this challenge?
2: Yeah, so one of the methods that I treat at length in the last chapter on anti-colonial pollution sciences is because I was new to Newfoundland and Labrador. And um, I look at plastics in codfish among other species and codfish is a huge freaking deal here. It's it's culturally, nutritionally, traditionally, politically like the thing. It's, wh- it's why Newfoundland and Labrador were colonized because because of cod. And so the first moment where I found plastic in a cod, I was like super excited for probably half a second before I realized, oh no, I found plastic in a cod in Newfoundland. How do I know? How to talk about this? How do I know it won't cause harm? How will I know people won't hate me or, or think I'm a lie? How do I like what? And the answer is I couldn't possibly know because I was new, because I wasn't from this place and I'm, I'll never be from this place. Uh, and so um, we called a meeting that morphed into a more formalized method we call community peer review where I called the, I called the meeting in the fishing villages that I got samples from. It was always in a dart hall because that's like the common building amongst different, you know, fishing communities. And I would be like, hey, this is what I found. This is what I did to find it. What do you think? And they would do what academic peer review does. Tell me whether it's valid, contextualize it better. Tell me whether I can publish it or not on the grounds of it causing harm or not. And under what conditions? And that has now become a formalized part of all of our research, and that that um, methodology has grown and become more specific. Now, so and this isn't covered in the book. Now we do something called Indigenous Data Sovereignty, where the Indigenous nations I work with, mostly Nunatsiavut, they own, control, have access, and possess all the data. So it starts. So they have everything and I have to ask permission to get my own data back, it's not my own data, it's the data I created, but it's theirs. So it starts with the no and I work for the yes, as opposed to seeking out validation in the other direction. Uh, so it's matured over time, but, but that's, that's one of the, that's the primary way I assure accountability. And I'm not from here. Um, I also hire a ton of locals uh, and pay them union wages. Uh, and rely on their local knowledge and networks to make the work valid and and useful and true.
1: So uh, Jake has a question that I think is quite interesting as a follow up, Dan. You described uh, you know some mistakes or you know problems that you discover underway. So how do you navigate the you know the act of remaining accountable to communities and relations that you established when you realize you made mistakes? Um, could you, could you say something about that?
2: Yeah. So uh, the, our lab book actually has an apology protocol in it because apologies are a central part of this kind of work and always will be, I will never get it so right. I will not have to apologize. So the apology framework comes out of restorative justice work where like, first of all, you have to say, I made a mistake and I I can recognize at least some of the harms that mistake, as opposed to like, oops, sorry, moving on. You have to articulate like, here's the harm I think I've caused, because what often happens is when I try and articulate that with my community partners, they say actually it's a different harm. <laughs> so sort of like what what Dr. Arnold answered, it's not actually asked earlier about the about the albatross. It's not actually an accuracy problem; it's a rudeness problem. I'm like, oh crap, right? I might recommend might recognize misrecognize the harm, and then um, I have to make a plan with them how to not make it again in concrete terms. And intention is insufficient to that. Um, one of the main ways that we locate those problems early and often is through community peer review, but also when I work in Nunat Siavut, I have a co-investigator who's fully co-investigator and I don't do or say or sample anything without her. Uh, I don't co-present, I don't talk to the media, I don't, because. And, and I've been working with her for three years and I still make rookie mistakes and I just made one this morning. <laughs> that, uh, I have to talk to her about later today. Uh, so, and it's one I've actually made before. So it's a little bit embarrassing, um, but, but making sure they're caught early and often as opposed to like in publications <laughs> is a huge part of that. So, I mean, in, in different indigenous folks, or I mean, my cousin and others talk about being in community as a really important part of methodology so that you've got all these aunties calling you in constantly and that is really important to this kind of work um is that you have people who can call you into good relations uh instead of the type of mistakes where they're so big or they're so often that you have to get ostracized because you're in bad relations um if that makes sense you get called into good instead of ostracized because of bad
1: um
2: yeah and there's different you, you can make those whether you're indigenous or not like you can find your aunties you can. I, I was super. One of the reasons I chose Duke is because they go through two rounds of peer review, not one. And I thought that was like the, a really good ethic, especially for this book. And I also put it through uh, peer review of people who love me. So I had like a party of people and we did a review and elder review. Um, and then also family review. So I sent it out to, yeah, so uh, which included elder review. So that was how I avoided making many, many mistakes on the page.
0: So I was wondering if you could say something more about the relationship of you know, land, since you're talking about land here and, and being situated in land and water, since water is, oh. if you were, where where the pollution happens and is when you say land, do you mean include water uh, in that land kind of land relations, land ethic? or is there something special or different or extra
2: um, or is it not? So uh, this this chunk up here, chapter one, where land and nature are discussed as two different things, it talks about how capital L land from an indigenous perspective Uh, is not only dirts and bees and trees and waters and air, but also stars and events and spirits and ancestors and intention and and how you walk down that path and how someone walked down that path before you and how someone will walk down that path in the future. And all of that is land. And it's it's not just everything, it's everything and how those things happen together. And, And throughout the book, that's got a capital L. And then it differentiates that with Western concepts of landscape, which is dirt and bees and trees, where like the differentiation between land and water might be important. Uh, and yeah, so yeah, there's a whole lesson on that in chapter one with giant footnotes. Perfect.
1: Yep. Dolly said she thought that was what you meant, but it's good, you know, to get this. Well,
2: out. cause I, I talk about them both because yeah. science usually talks about small end land, land, dirt and bees and trees. And, and, and when you're using the same word to talk about different, but overlapping things. I mean, that the, the book is all about how you work through things in these compromised spaces where like, there's no purity. There is overlap between capital L land and small L land. There's quite a lot of overlap. And actually a lot of that overlap is good and, and quite usable in good land relations. Um, so, you know, working through that space is a, is a huge part of the book. Yeah. And I'm thinking
0: here about to the um, you know, Australian idea of country, to me, that that's this that that's the capital L land and and you know is country, which again has also the the tension of country and country, right? It's because we use the word country for for nationness, and it's not nation in that sense, and yet it's country. So, um, yeah, that's that's very similar.
1: So we have a different kind of question that I think is actually a really good one because again, it's about relations. Uh in the book talk between you as speaker and us as audience uh, about your uh, images in the background. So Baldeep wanted to know, how do you do this? You know, do you use a green screen? Um, how do you set this up? Because I mean, you use it to great effect, I think. Yes, exactly. You can point to text. is right there, rather than having the, you know, the big PowerPoint with a tiny little window with you, which is what we do not want with the book talks. But instead, you know, this, this works really well.
2: This is why I was so happy this was on Zoom because I can only do this with Zoom. So under your Zoom preferences, there's a thing called background and filters and you can add uh, all sorts of photos back there, anything you want. Now I'm in the lab. Uh, And so I've started using these in my talks because it's way more interesting. It's also very challenging. It's like being a weather person, everything's backwards and that uh, adds comic relief and keeps me on my toes. So yeah, I love it. And then you can interact and yeah so zoom preferences that's where it's at
1: there's another um app called Mm mm-hmm that uh, works for mac that does some similar things actually that i've worked with a little bit so there there are more and more solutions there now um yes so um There's another question uh, from Nicholas here about the role of humor as a method in writing and scientific practice. Could you say a bit more about that?
2: Yeah, so I keep waiting for someone else to publish on this, (laughs) so I can just read it and cite it. Uh, So most, I think most folks who deal with systematic oppression Humor is always a huge part of uh, surviving, grieving, flourishing all at the same time. Um, so like if you walk into, I remember I, I, when I was younger, I spent a lot of time in uh, different forms of institutional spaces for people who are having rough times. And you could always tell when, where there were a lot of indigenous folks, cause you would walk in and there'd just be this cackling, <laughs> right, even though there was also crying. Well, if you went to the other ones, there would just be a lot of crying or silence. And you're like, yeah, you know, which one's better? <laughs> the one with the like cackling. So uh, humor, uh, and I was also a stand-up comedian, and what I really liked about jokes, which is a very specific type of humor, is that they have a very specific format. They have a premise, um, you know, a hundred bottles of beer walk into a bar, great premise. They have the hook, and they ask the bartender for a drink, and the bartender says no. And then they have the about face. And I actually am making them up as I go along, so I actually don't have a punchline to this. But the punchline tells you, uh, oh, I know the, the bartender says, no, we don't serve beer here because we're a wine bar. I don't know, something like that. Not a very good punchline was what I had to work with. So the, the punchline puts you in a different direction. And that's why you left, because you realized, oh, I'm over here. I'm not over there. You know, and 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 so the structure of a joke and the structure of changing people's mind are very similar. And so in a book like mine, where you're teaching difficult things, being like, Yes, by the way, everything that you think is normal and fine, super colonial. And so you're doing a lot of that the, the equivalent of the punchline work. Using actual punchlines make everyone a lot happier (laughs) to sort of get those sort of switches. It also makes a certain amount of space in the text. So like laughing or sighing or snorting or just reading a little joke gives you a moment. uh, And because a lot of people call this text dense, not because I use a lot of giant jargon, but because like a lot gets packed into a sentence, having those moments to laugh, I think is a form of processing and thinking. that's really important. Uh, so that is, I want someone else and specifically like elders who know a lot more about the properties of, of humor um, to say more about that sort of stuff because I think I'd learn a lot, um, but yeah.
0: I mean, I was, I was thinking then about um, Nicole Seymour's book about environmentalism um, that deals with uh, how, yeah, the, the kind of humor and you know not the mainstream um, can can function in environmentalism. and we have actually in the journal Environmental Humanities, we have an article that should be coming out next year in our second issue on eco comedy. Um, so specifically looking at this kind of you know the use of of that kind of comedic turn to get people to turn right in their in their ways of being
2: so yeah folks are interested in in the in like the formal and geeky and highly strategic use of humor I gave a talk in Toronto at the binocular conference called a 101 pieces of junk walk into a bar uh and that's on my website the recording of that talk and in that talk I go very formally through like humor and the structure of a joke and the work it does. And then there are like lots of jokes and each joke does a certain amount of theorization. And, um, and that's like the most hardcore I've ever gotten about that. If you would also like to get hardcore.
1: Yeah, because I think there's a difference with many authors, you know, their personality shines through in the way they write. And for some of them, of course, there's a lot of humor that may not be done as you know, a specific method in a way it's, it's just the author's voice. Uh so it's fascinating to hear you talk about that as a you know specific method as well. I was wondering, do you have any um, other examples um i mean books or authors uh, other than you that you know who do this really well um, uh academic authors. <laughs> Uh, Not necessarily,
0: <laughs> but things you're—I uh, guess you—you know—something you might be inspired by, mm-hmm. um, or you have. Looked so to- Max
2: Boykoff, uh, someone stuck one of uh, a publication in the in the chat where that has Max Boykoff in it. Max Boykoff is the other academic I know where like humor is a, f- a fundamental methodologically necessary intervention in climate change uh, communication. Um, but other than that um i most like elders a lot of elders i know use humor to to do teachings because sometimes a teaching from an elder is really heavy they tell you that you're bad <laughs> essentially is how i understand it and so like humor tells you like but it's still okay and i still love you or you're like still on the team or whatever and 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 also does work yet other types of work too tells you where boundaries are and and where they aren't and that sort of stuff um, behind you i have one of my favorite swears jokes footnotes and that's number 84 so this is where i talk about cock blocking as a really important methodology to deal with like unsolicited desire that's a good one yeah so the joke is of course uh, explaining jokes is not funny except there is a comedian whose entire shtick is explaining jokes and she's hilarious i forget her name um she's out of boston but um uh you know, the footnote on cock block, you're going to assume that I'm going to apologize or whatever. I'm like, don't worry, the spelling is right. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and I did actually check the spelling. So the copy editor wouldn't get me on that one.
1: In extension of that, then, uh, the swearing, does it fill the same kind of function as humor or do you it use that does- strategic in different ways?
2: Uh, some of it does. the swear. So there's two... Two explicit uses of swearing in the book. Uh, so I swear a lot, especially when I give presentations. Uh, and that has uh, always been part of my effort to be low class in academia. So I don't actually swear a lot in my casual day-to-day life but I swear a lot more in presentations. And that's to that's to keep it blue collar. That's to keep it low brow, but brilliant. And that's um, also wearing sweat, like a hoodie to a presentation. Like th- this is all very con- like on purpose. Um, and an effort to show first-gen folks what brilliance in academia looks like uh, and that can look the fuck like this. So uh, yeah, there's that. Uh, and then some of the, a lot, so one of the mistakes I made in the first version of the book is a lot of my swears were ones that I use commonly and they don't have good gender politics. <laughs> They're mostly like boy parts, <laughs> right? And so one of the one of the community reviews of the book was like, hey, you might want to think of some more like trans friendly and sort of swears and I was like oh and so I did a ton of research on swears which involved reading a lot of Scottish stuff which was amazing uh and so a lot of like asshat goons is one of the swear like one of the turns now and that replaced a swear a more common swear um and it does better work because they're chosen much more intentionally to talk about the relations that the swear is supposed to be about as opposed to just reaching for like the lowest hanging swear um so yeah this book is so edited. People are like, oh, you have such a nice voice. I'm like, this is not what I sound like at all. This book has been edited within an inch of its life, heavily, heavily by many people.
1: Again, something that resonates with me being from Northern Norway. I mean, we have cod and we have swearing. so <laughs> <laughs> They're
2: both culturally like yeah. important. Yeah, yes,
1: yeah, and, exactly. and the,
2: the blue collar background.
1: <laughs> so um Again, a question about the, the process here from Deidre um, about um, institutional expectations that run against the ethos of your work. I mean, when you have you know all these various forms of review and feedback uh, from people, uh, and you know re- the reviewer wants to see something, and the community says no, or you have very short deadline to approve proofs, etc. Which yes, we know happens. So um, have you had any particular like difficulties there or strategies for navigating that?
2: So I, th- I mean, one of the advantages, again, of choosing Duke, if I was like, hey, Duke, this is going to take an extra three years because I have to go through more review and community, they would have been like, that makes us sad, but we understand it is good. Or at least Ken would have said that, for instance. So I don't think that pressure wouldn't have come from Duke. Um the other thing is I am at Memorial University of Newfoundland for a reason. I had job offers at other types of universities. Uh, this university is very serious about community-based work. There's a line in our collective agreement that you can get tenure for local knowledge. Uh, there, it's, and it's not perfect, right? There's, it's still, you know, we have the same problems but they look different and we have a union. They look different. Um, and that's why I am here and not at like an R1. Secondly, I I was trained in R1 American institutions where like, so I outpublish, outperform, outgrant, outfund, outsupervise most of my peers. And so that gives me a lot of wiggle room to do whatever the heck I want. Because I have at this point, I think five million dollars in grants. What are you gonna do? Not give me tenure? I don't think so. I have more grant than anyone else on that tenure committee. And so like I can also run around in a tutu. And what are they going to do? Nothing. Right. There's so um, like most black indigenous people of color, non-binary trans folk, we know we have to outperform folks. I just do it very loudly to give me as much wiggle room as possible to do the weird stuff. And like, oh, a book by Duke. How fancy. Who cares if it says ass hat goons constantly and they're like and cock blocking is a methodology. Right. Like Duke Press is fancy. So that's what the promotion and tenure committee would you know, matters to them. Well, the other things matter to them too, because I have actually a really good department. But yeah, so outperform them loudly.
1: So you described a couple of times uh, your lab clear. Uh, and I've seen also, I mean, it show up on Twitter many times, uh, also the most recent version of the lab manual. Could you say a little bit more about? Again, I mean, you describe various forms of collectives, uh, I think, in, in your presentation. But could you say a bit more about the lab as collective, how it works, how you developed it?
2: The story of the lab is really long. Um, so the the shortest version is, again, like when I started doing science, I didn't want to replicate a lot of the critiques that I already know from science, from feminist STS, from having left science as a young scientist. Um, uh, Right, so uh, I wanted to do it very differently. And within academia, there aren't a lot of roadmaps for how to run a lab with humility as opposed to heroism, which and machismo, which is actually the dominant model. Um, So, uh, luckily, I have a lot of experience in social movements, and so I just started running the lab like a social movement meeting. So, I'm trained in anti oppressive facilitation, so I'd facilitate. I wouldn't say instead of lead, because it's still my lab, and there's no question about that, and there is a hierarchy, it's mine, and then everyone else is horizontal after that. Um, But running it like a social movement meeting instead of a, a meeting where my desires had to be carried out changed a lot of the dynamics in the lab, right? Junior scholars talk as much as senior scholars, and there's actually things set up to ensure that happens, Um, Collective consent on major decisions that affect the entire lab, another facilitation technique I know. So I just, you know, so what happened over time is that this humble, accountable, equitable lab, people started saying the best part about this lab is it's a safe place for me to eat my lunch. And I'm like, really? We do some of the coolest methodologies in science? We do like anti-colonial science and you think it's the best place to eat your lunch? That seems disappointing to me, but only because my goals for the lab were different than their experiences of the lab. And over time, lab members started to say, actually, the collectivity of this lab is, is a very important part of this lab. And so I started to listen to that and be accountable. And so now I also do a lot of work to keep it as a collective, with good, which has good boundaries uh, and is not radically inclusive. Uh, And I have to be accountable to that and the safety and the flourishing of that collective, including when like they want to do stuff that I personally don't want to do, because we're a collective together. So, uh, yeah, it's a lot of chores to run a lab like that, but it's also like a super robust space uh, and a space where a lot of people flourish and do very cool things.
3: Is that so, enough of yeah. it? Yeah, I didn't talk uh, about
2: plastics at all.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Um, but but I mean, as as you point out, it's it's more than just plastics, right? It's about relations. Um, and and so talking about those relations is, in fact, talking about plastic. Um, you know. So uh, Gwen um, had a question in the comments, and Gwen's an undergraduate with a large research project um so she says she's encouraged to read ruthlessly and read many books and skin the, skim them and get the arguments to get only what's useful and disregard the form and efforts of the author but so she's wondering how that squares with engaged respectful reading so this kind of extractive reading which sounds exactly like the colonialist paradigm of land relations um you know, versus taking time.
2: And what do you think about that? So um, there's a section in the book about extractive reading, which is not my term. It's Eve Tuck's term, what I got from one of her tweets, which is quoted at length in the book. And so it's, yeah, it's not a coincidence that reading, which is a methodology, follows the same colonial land relations as extractive science. So that's what chapter one is sort of about, right? So You've got land, which is all these robust intertwined relationships, which get turned into nature where separateness starts being the ethic, which then turns into resource where the, the value only flows in one direction, which then moves easily into property and uh, acquisition where the, the value is then owned and, and encoded, right? That's how, that's how reading is. So trying to figure out more towards the, oops, wrong direction, more towards the land side of relations in reading so Eve Tuck talks about this too in the tweet. Uh, um, long quoting some of the, the some of the footnotes are really long because I quote someone for like two pages to be like, you know what, you don't need me to rephrase this. She does a really good job. Here's two pages of Zoe Todd inside my book. Um, because she does it better. Um, So there's that sort of stuff. There's taking time. There's an experiment that Deandre Smiles and I do called Collaborary. It's better written than it is spoken, where we read and put our thoughts on Twitter. We try and read generously and we've got, um, yes, I mean, yes, for deadlines, there's this thing where you have to read extractively and I don't see a way around some of those habits, but, I do try and prioritize reading time so that I can read not like that, um, and in good relations, and in good spirit, and on the author's own terms, instead of my term setting my reading, their term set the reading, which means reading with generosity as opposed to reading with my needs in the front. Um, it takes more time. You cannot meet all deliverables when you read like that because deliverables are based on extraction. That's why it's a dominant system. That's what dominant means. Um, but depending on your advisor or your situation or your jurisdiction of where you have autonomy, you can push back on that in different ways. Um, yeah.
1: Thank you. I mean, I think that's a real concern and I'm certainly guilty of extractive reading also. It's, I mean, it's so hard to find the time and space to, to deal with that. Uh, our time- is. And- sorry, yeah.
2: on the topic of that appropriate to this, you haven't read my book we're still having a chat. There's no, you didn't read it extractively. So we could have this chat and you're like, Hey, I haven't read the book. Please like talk to that audience. Okay. That's the better relation as opposed to like skimming my book and being, you know, whatever. So kudos for not reading it. (laughs)
1: Well, I suspect many people will actually go back and find their copies and read it or reread it, actually, after this this uh, book talk. So just to to wrap up, thank you to Dr. Max LeBaron for uh, this presentation of Pollution is Colonialism. Thanks to everyone in the audience also for uh, asking fantastic questions uh, and, and listening to what was going on here.